Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaker whose passion for horror manifested in the cinematic celebration of one of the genre's most celebrated icons. His documentary, To Hell and Back, The Kane Hodder Story, honors the life and career of Kane Hodder, a stuntman and actor known to most for his iconic portrayals of Jason Voorhees. Beyond this celebratory feature, today's guest also has made forays into fright with the holiday horror short, The Toy, and is a producer of the upcoming They're Inside. Please welcome to the show, writer, director, and producer, Derek Dennis Herbert. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I uh, love talking to people whose interest in horror has manifested in different ways. Obviously, you're a writer and director who deals in narrative, but creating a whole documentary about uh, a horror icon that you love is kind of new territory for for guests on the show. So I'm very interested to dig into that with you today. Uh, But before we even do that, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this, and that's why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think people are drawn to the genre? But why horror? Well, yeah, for for me personally, I've I've, I've been a fan of of horror for years, and a lot less years than I think a lot of people think. A lot of people, like their whole childhood, they were into it. I was terrified of horror for many years, like... Mm -hmm. Even as a kid, Beetlejuice, I remember like being terrified to even watch it. Uh, it was really in college that I started having my cinematographer, actually, and, and good friend Zach Hunter got me into horror with Hatchet and a lot of the other uh, genre films of the time. And we were both, you know, I got so enthusiastic about it and kept going and watching more that that kind of drew me in as a filmmaker. I also saw a lot of opportunity with the fans because there are no better fans. And, and Keynes told me this, uh, Cassandra Peterson, people who run conventions and they always say, and the hotel people, they're always like horror people and fans are the best. They leave the hotel the cleanest They're They tip very well at the restaurants at the hotel. You have a comedy or a religious convention. The religi- <laughs> they said the religious conventions are the worst. They leave the rooms in disarray. They steal the Bibles half the time and they don't, um, they don't tip very well. Uh, they usually are the ones who write the tip, maybe get a better paying job, I'm that kind of thing. I'm just trying to imagine a religious convention only because a lot of my life is spent at horror conventions and just sort of the dealer room floor and sort of the, the celebratory carnival barker of it all. Uh, that's what I like. It's exciting. It's fun. There's there's a celebration. Like, no disrespect, but I just kind of feel like a, a religious con- convention probably is is not. That. It probably doesn't have the same energy. No, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> there's probably not a whole market, you know, a marketplace of uh, wonderful artisans selling really cool stuff. It's probably a lot more like various pastors and stuff. I've, I've never been, but I, I have a feeling that it's a little less uh, energy in there. And that's right. probably why, um, you know... Probably less tchotchkes. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, also like horror, like I know we say it in the doc, but I just love the way that it's stated. Uh, you know, it it's something that you don't get to deal with on a day to day basis. I know right. Robert Englund in there says like it's a, a catharsis. Right. Being in a theater with people watching a film, dealing with subjects like death, because we don't really do that on a day to day basis, not in our society. Other countries kind of deal with it. A little more, but we're in America are a little more closed off to certain subjects that we deal with in horror films. No, absolutely. And I think that what you were saying about the positive energy of a horror audience 
uh, is rooted in that. And I've talked about this with other guests in the past, how there is to the outside world, uh, people who are not as interested in the genre, this notion that horror fans are depraved or like sick things or whatever. But then when you actually interact with members of the community, uh, they're some of the loveliest people. And one of the things that always sticks in my mind when I first started getting involved in horror was uh, there was a filmmaker in Pittsburgh whose uh, daughter got sick and the community banded together to help him raise money for the surgery. And that was just what the horror community was. It was more than just people who like these movies. It was a community that came together because of these movies. And I always feel like that there was sort of a sense of like, maybe uh, well adjustment because we got all of our, our negative energy out in the art. The art is that catharsis that you're talking about. Um, which brings me back to sort of your beginnings. What I love is that you said it took you a while to become a fan of horror. Like you didn't start there the way some people do. And it's because you were terrified. Uh, tell me about that. And tell me about your origins. Like growing up, were you always interested in movie making in general? Yeah, I, I've wanted to be a, a director since I was three and a half. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really haven't had any other real, uh, you know, say for a day or two here and there in, like, preschool when I got, would be peer pressured into saying, like, I want to be a fireman. But, like, <laughs> I never actually had any other ambitions, uh, like, ultimate goals other than uh, filmmaking and being a director since I was three and a half. Um, and I always did, hard did always intrigue me. It just always kind of stopped at like the the packaging or the or like seeing a little bit of a scene. I remember like fast forwarding through certain movies because I really enjoyed the movie, but I couldn't deal with certain scenes. And uh, weirdly enough, one of the things that got me back into liking horror again was uh, I'm a huge fan of the Silent Hill video game series. Okay, um, more, much more than the films, but the the series just especially the second one really kind of got me back into like. Well, I'm enjoying being scared here. Right. So I wonder if like these films I, that have that same feeling. And I always used to go like even back then to like, you know, the it, we, I grew up in Connecticut. We had an event called uh, Lake Compounds is um, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It doesn't really matter. But they had a they have a haunted like attraction. Mm-hmm. And it was I would go every year and get terrified. And I still go to these things and people will laugh because one of the criticisms of a lot of the more modern haunts are they're not as scary. They're more like jump. But I get terrified a <laughs> lot, I, very easily in in in, in real life. Uh, on film, it's taking a lot more lately to to get a reaction. But on right. in a uh, in real life, I'm not as big of a fan of being scared. I'm curious because I liked what you said about uh, you were always fascinated by it, but it would go so far as maybe just seeing the cover art. Uh, but there's all there's that draw. And do you think that has to do with the fact that there's something about it that feels a little forbidden, that even though like you aren't sure you're ready to engage with it, you're still kind of pulled towards it? Yeah, agreed. And also, I think that that's a huge part of it. I think it's, they're also some of the more interesting like packaging and everything. Because it, it was, you know, I grew up in the 90s and it was like, if you look at the VHS covers, there's no wonder I was drawn to some of them that right. I was. Because you see something like, you know, dead alive or something like that. It's a cool artwork. Then you see like steel magnolias and it's just a couple of, you know, women on the cover just standing there. <laughs> you know, true. it's, it's different. Right. You know, like every rom comes the same four posters and you can look online and see the, the comparisons is always like two people with their backs to each other. Right. To, you know, them going like, ah, some kind <laughs> of a random pose, but like with horror, they're always, they've always been really unique. Even going back to the old like universal 
classic horror monsters posters and and like celebrations of horror back then you know it was they've always kind of had this draw and i think it's because until recently that like you said it was sort of that forbidden thing i think more now thanks to blumhouse thanks to a lot of the other you know positive moving forward in horror we're starting to come up with a resurgence right. where popular mainstream horror is becoming a thing again um and kind of a constant thing whereas it used to kind of come and go and then would disappear and be that schlocky thing um and i think independent horror will always be here but it's so wonderful to see films like you know happy death day to you and and the fact that we're getting more universal monsters thanks to blumhouse with the invisible man like it's right. incredible to see like all the moving forward with horror that we're having and in good direction the conjuring uh, movies all that kind of stuff it's like it's a good time to be in the in the horror industry. Uh, well, you mentioned Happy Death Day to you, and before we move on, I have to point out that uh, you and I were both at a recent Blumhouse event screening of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you, where they screened both the movies in the double feature. And just by sheer luck, we were seated next to each other at the theater. Uh, and that was after we had started uh, communicating about bringing you on the show. So I just think it was uh, horror serendipity that... Um, we crossed paths and now you're here today. So agreed. And I, I was terrified I wouldn't I wouldn't make that screening too. Like I was originally IRCP'd for two. I was you know, because that was as you know, it was packed. Like yeah. that that house was sold out and I was like I was terrified because I got there probably thirty minutes before it started and just by luck, you know, they had a seat for me. I right. was just excited that I was able to go experience those films in that energy. And I still I I like to the listeners of it, go out and see the movie because I want it to perform really well. Absolutely. And, you know, when you speak to the power and the energy of a horror audience, uh, it was really on display that night. It was. People were there to celebrate and you really just felt like it was an atmosphere of of uh, just excitement and film worship, really. Exactly. Uh, so you said that you wanted to be a director since you were three and a half years old. Yeah. Uh, but it took you a while to get to horror in terms of like uh, you reconnected it via video games, which I think is very common with a, a more modern audience. Uh, but some obviously in the in between, you probably had a vision of the kind of movie that you wanted to make. What kind of movies were you interested in before horror? Uh, and were there any like standouts that you're like, this is this is why I want to make movies? Well, I Jaws has been my favorite movie for years, even right. before I really re got into horror and. It's considered horror by some. I don't really necessarily consider Jaws horror. I think it can have, it has moments of horror in it. Right. But I feel like that's more of an action adventure kind of movie. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because um, on our very last episode, we had this exact discussion where uh, our guest was like, oh, I never thought I liked horror movies till I realized I liked Jaws. So this is sort of like point counterpoint. I'm interested. Yeah, I just, I just, not that I was uninterested in the, in the, in the horror elements of it. I just, I just, think that that movie i mean i just think first of all i think spielberg in general uh like whether or not you like every movie he does and everyone's entitled to their own opinion right if you watch jaws if you watch ready player one lincoln uh the post like he is still like he was back then on his second feature mm -hmm. and he is today like uh technically an amazing filmmaker like the shots he was able to put together back in on his second feature and the incredible shots he can put together on like a film like Lincoln now. Right. Like it's, so I think I was more drawn to like the, I was always really drawn to like the eighties, like 
action family kind of the Goonies, um, Gremlins, you know, so they all were kind of horror adjacent. I just right. never really crossed into that realm. But like, yeah, the old era of like the 80s action family films, though I wrote like I still have it somewhere, a script for a film with like as like a like young adult starring film, like with a group of kids who go off and like and the first film I wrote, which was in fifth grade, a feature was uh, about the Loch Ness Monster. It was like an action adventure, like buddy group, like a bunch of high schoolers right. go out and and do this and reading the dialogue now, like what I thought high schoolers talked like. <laughs> well, I mean, that's also a lesson for anyone who's writing in studios today. I love watching movies uh, that were clearly written by older people who just have like not interacted with a teenager in the last yeah, like, 20 years. What if they yeah. not wanted to, they <laughs> yeah. didn't like do any research. They're right. like, they didn't go out and like people want, like that's one of the things I try to do. If I'm writing off who I am, I try to go off and listen to people and try to figure out, who these characters are. I don't think they do that a lot of times. They're like, no. ah, well, she's a young girl, so she's going to be talking about Barbie dolls. And it's like, ah. It's true. There's just like a lack of connection. And it's so interesting for, from a writer's perspective. I, I I am far removed from being a teenager, but even I'll log into Twitter and be like, all right, the kids are saying fam. What does that mean? So then I have to check in. But like, I at least update, you know, to know what, what's going on. Uh, so I, I do love, though, that you were always kind of horror adjacent. It just took you a while to realize that's where it was. Because like you said, you didn't necessarily think of these movies as horror, but even writing a horror script about the Loch Ness Monster is in, in the neighborhood. No, agreed. Yeah. And yeah, I and looking back kind of, I'm now realizing that a lot of the stuff, you know, I was always drawn to these films. It was just, yeah. I don't right. know. I think for a while I was hesitant to be like, I'm a horror fan. I'm a big like I'm, hu- you know, I enjoy the horror genre because maybe of this weird forbidden thing right. that like, but yeah, I don't have a problem with that anymore. <laughs> well, it's interesting about the idea of claiming the identity of being a horror fan, because I think too, as creators, especially in the queer space, there's always a moment where you have to claim your identity and choose, you know, whether that's part of your art. And uh, did you ever really have to reconcile those two? Like when, you know, you realized that you were part of the LGBTQ community or? Sort of. I I just, I still feel the same way kind of I did at the beginning, which is that I, I am a gay filmmaker, but I'm not necessarily, I, I'm not out to make gay films. Right. I, I would like to bring LGBT issues and theme themes to mainstream films. Right. I would rather not make films within necessarily the LGBT space. Right. Just because I feel like there are many exceptions to what I'm about to say, but there are a lot of bad films that are labeled gay films. Like I've right. watched many of them and they're just schlocky kind of all jokes are meant for the one audience. I feel like there's a way to to make real characters that are gay in mainstream films without having to necessarily make every single joke in the in the film be about grinder, hookups, awkward situations that only the gay community understands. Right. Cuz it kind of alienates the movie from ever being able to be a box office success. But like you, you have films like Love Simon, Call Me by Your Name. Like those films are at least starting to, you know, crack into the mainstream and the award market without kind of being, you know, explicitly, explicitly 
gay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's LGBT. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that we've talked about before is sort of the long history of gay cinema and a lot of the movies that you're talking about. uh, When during a certain time, there was not a lot of gay uh, content being released. We kind of gravitated towards whatever we were given. And there is a general knowledge that maybe not all of those movies were good, but it's sort of like we took what we could get. Uh, but I think you're right. Now, I think that I think that we're in a place where we can make gay content that is part of a larger discussion. And I think that what you're talking about is really um, starting to be realized. Obviously, there's a lot of work still left to do. Agreed. But when you look at the movies that were nominated this year at the Oscars alone, uh, you know, and as problematic as some of them may be in like a completely different other discussion, but most of the movies nominated for Best Picture in some way, shape, or form contain LGBT themes, uh, even if they weren't necessarily marketed as such. Like the favorite is a lesbian love triangle that that's not even how the movie was sold because they didn't necessarily think that that was like the sole drive of the film. And I think that's interesting because it brings an audience to it that's like, oh, this is what's going on, but this isn't just what it's about. Agreed. And so I think that there's a lot of interesting discussion to be had. I do think there's still a place and need for uh, queer cinema that is queer dedicated, but I think the blurring of the lines is very important too. No, no, no. And I'm I'm not saying that there isn't isn't a place for it. I'm just saying I'm not necessarily going that's not necessarily my goal is to become a, uh, the the face of that of, of that course, yeah. film space uh, however you know the the fact that it exists is important um, I I remember I forget the name of it but uh, Peaches Christ a, a drag queen in uh, um, San Francisco made a movie with Elvira I think it's all about evil yes uh, with her and Natasha Leone and that one was like that was such a good good movie, uh, a great ride for a horror fan. And I think it was really cool to kind of have a lot of those people, a lot of those personalities kind of mesh. Right. And I, that's what I am enjoying about like a lot of the like forays into filmmaking. A lot of people are taking is I feel like in the queer community, I feel like we're kind of for the first time being allowed to embrace not only who we are, but um, being allowed to make other films like, the Chris Landon, the director of the Happy Death Day movies, right. is openly gay and yeah. is not, you know, like he is allowed to make films like the, those movies aren't explicitly gay. Right. Uh, you know, the, even back in the day, the guy who made Frankenstein, the original. Yeah, James Well. Yeah, James Well. He was gay back before it was even allowed, but everyone knew. Right. Well, and, that's sort yeah. of been the drive of the show is to reveal that we've always been here. We've always been part of the fabric of horror. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's exciting that, you know, the the world keeps expanding and the conversation gets to be more broad. And uh, so speaking of filmmaking and the journey into filmmaking, uh, you from a young age want to be a filmmaker. This is something that you've always had your eyes on. And talk to me a little bit about when you were able to first start making that a reality and your your kind of movement into this world. Yeah, so I um, so I I kind of jumped into it a little bit like with I used to make like just short like film projects with my sister where we'd grab like the camcorder and 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 film. I made probably like fifteen or sixteen movies like that, mm-hmm. and then I wrote a film that a bunch of my friends were in. Um, it never got finished, but <laughs> I started in like sixth right. and seventh grade. We shot that 
and or ninth and like ninth and tenth grade or something. And then I went to film school down in Florida at Full Sail University, um, and that's when I kind of really started like moving forward in in my career as far as a filmmaker, right? And uh, really got a sense of like what all the positions did and and what other elements besides directing I was actually interested in. And even though I am a writer as well, like I have a lot of envy for for screenwriters because it is not a task I enjoy. Right. Like I do it, and I'm you know I might be good at it, maybe, but it takes a lot of work for me. Whereas, mm. uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't for full time writers, but I feel like there's a level of enjoyment there that isn't necessarily there with me. Like for me, right. the directing and producing aspects are what I get most excited about. I'm apparently a pretty good first AD as well, but I don't love that. Right. But I don't know how you could really love first ADing because it, at least I don't know. But just because for me, it feels like I'm the, I like being enjoyed by people. And as a first AD, you're, you're really not. The villain. That's usually. the villain is usually, I try to do, I'm always very nice. Right. And that's why people I think like me is because I'll still, I'll ask all the people what they need, how much time I'll give them a more realistic time report back to everybody then kind of walk away well i will say uh for for me as a filmmaker i do know that that's a tough job is the first ad because they're usually the one that has to be the taskmaster yep uh and as much as they have the bad cop role um i could not make a movie without a good ad no like they're my they're usually like the most crucial person on my set no i always say from now on like there there are a couple of things like especially with a narrative like with the Doc, I got away without having a script supervisor, but for a the narrative, I want a good scripty. I want a, a good, good first AD because right. I don't want to have to try to deal with doing that, any of those things in addition to directing and, and you know, producing it because that's enough work. But then I moved to L.A. nine years ago right. and I got an internship with a, a film company and that kind of led into creating... Uh, the short that I made, the Christmas horror one you mentioned before, the toy. Right, yeah. Tell me about that, because before we went on the air, you said that you had sort of an interesting journey with that, but it also helped you learn things that prepared you for making the documentary, and I'm interested in that. And I also just love holiday horror films. It's like one of my favorite subgenres. So No, I do. Listen, I do too. That's why I, I, came, that's why I came up with the idea, uh, which was, you know, it was pretty much taking child's play, mm-hmm. uh, removing the immediate telling you exactly who did it because in child's play like second scene in spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen a movie from the 80s but (laughs) it's a you know it's voodoo magic that turns this criminal into the doll right and we know that from the beginning so we're expecting this to show up again right unless it's a MacGuffin, which they i don't think how terrible would that have been it would have been a terrible play and then it's just never chucky (laughs) exactly but like my thought was is we don't reveal who we don't reveal who's doing these things until the end, or if at all. Right. So it, the kid for Christmas got this, like doll. The uh, extreme skater dude was the name of the like doll we came up with, like from looking at all the different toys that are out now. And then mm-hmm. we um, got this doll, dressed it up, and stuff. But the problem was is that because it was a low, low, low budget short that I mostly funded myself, um, crew was you know were not paid and actors weren't paid so it was a um labor of love but a lot of the people on the crew were not did not love it 
Uh, So they bailed. They Mm -hmm. got jobs that probably paid or something they preferred. So at the last minute, it was like me and three other people making the short. So like the crafty person bailed. So then I had to make all the food. Oh, wow. And direct. And the uh, a few other people bailed. So I was having to try to figure out how to do that. So instead of being able to focus on directing, it ended up being like I was kind of half there all the time. Right. And that's why I kind of have a mixed emotions about it is like the because of that, like we only got like half the original plan shot. So the final film is not the film I wrote. Right. It's like a put together version of it. But like the original kid uh, had to pull out the last minute. He got like a commercial for like Toys R Us or something. Mm-hmm. And then so we had to recast and we got this kid that looked exactly like he could have been the son of these two characters. We didn't have time to audition. So we, you know, opted on the recommendation of the child agency who sent us a kid who's had a great look and apparently did amazing on commercials, but he just froze in front of the camera and do these very awkward motions, like with his hands, like flapping them around and stuff. And so I had to deal with that. So like, the lead, the kid couldn't really act right, and all these other things. But it taught me a lot about a lot about filmmaking and something I did on the doc and I made us do on there inside is a lot of pre-production. Right. Like on the short, I had like two weeks on the on talent back. Like I started pre-production in like August and we shot in June. Like even before I approached Kane, like I knew I wanted to make a doc. Right. I started planning for it, planning for budgeting, finding investors, getting things on the line so that when we approached him, it was like, okay, I want to do it. We could shoot two weeks later, not, you know, right. <laughs> six months. Uh, so I think two things about the toy before we jump into yeah. uh, to Helen back. Uh, I'm, I do like that you took an experience that you consider problematic, but you have, have since found the educational benefit of it. Because there are, you know, as, as any filmmaker who's out there in the world that's had uh, projects not necessarily go the way they planned, it's very easy to distance yourself from something and just be like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. But you are you are very open about this didn't go the way I liked, but it prepared me for the next thing. Yeah, I, I also have many, several years now <laughs> away from it. At the time, like it took me like we we shot it. I forget when, but we shot it over, the, I think, the summer and I didn't look at it again until like January. I didn't want to look at it until right. like I released it on Valentine's Day the the following year. But like that's it. Like right. I didn't I did not want to look at it for months because I was like I was too close. I was like, I don't care to look at this. Like right. it fell apart. It almost cost me friendships like it was not worth uh, what it took. And then I edited it. I put together, you know, a film out of it. Uh, and I was like, well, I made something right. And it was like a two day film intensive and I've never repeated any of the things on that set. And that alone makes it worthwhile. Like I'd much rather have had that experience on that than have something happen on the dock. Right. You at the top of the show mentioned that, you know, in addition to silent Hill, one of the things that started pulling you back into horror was that you saw hatchet. And of course, Kane Hodder plays Victor Crowley in the Hatchet series, which I think is interesting because a lot of people first really connect to Kane as Jason. And maybe you did, but like you, you said that that you named drop that movie as a particular kind of reentry point into the genre. Um, 
And, you know, from seeing that movie, becoming interested or re-energized on horror uh, to now, you've made a documentary all about the life of the man who starred in that film. So tell me about just the creation of this documentary and why Kane and uh, just the journey on that. Because a documentary, as any filmmaker will tell you, is a long journey and a labor of love. It really is. Uh, but yeah, to go back, I did actually know Kane first from Hatchet and Hatchet 2. You know, those films, uh, it was those that kind of inspired me to go back and watch the Friday the 13th movies, uh, as well as a friend of mine who was like, you have to watch these. Right. So I never really got past my DVD of the first Friday the 13th. Like, it was such a bad transfer. They did such a horrible job on that <laughs> original DVD I had that, like, it literally just looked like murky water. Right. It wasn't until I got, like... I, I got the Blu-ray from a friend that I was like, okay. Well, imagine for like, those of us who saw it for the first time on VHS. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, a lot of these films are, you know, breathing classic life like J.J. Abrams did with, like, Phantasm. Like, right. that movie looks incredible now. Like, they're doing such good work, finally, on some of these older films, thanks to companies, you know, like um, like Arrow videos and, and stuff. And there's a bunch of them around here. Right. Uh, they they do such good work, but yeah, those were the movies that I originally started with, and then, um, I just I I always I wanted to make a good docu good documentary. I thought it should be horror adjacent because, um, I just I always like the energy of the horror community. I always enjoy the people, and they're just some good stories as well as like personalities. Like mm -hmm. so, I was kind of just looking for the best story uh, that was both human interest and horror because right. I wanted to appeal like we were talking about with like queer audiences and, and films. Like I wanted to appeal to both a larger spectrum of people and the community that I love. So I was trying to find a good story and I heard some clips of Kane talking um, through on YouTube with like Dell from dark delicacies and a few other like interviews he did. And he seemed like, you know, he, he would vaguely mention things about, his burn or bullying. And I was like, Hmm, mm -hmm. it, this guy seems to be really affected by this stuff. And then I Googled him and he had a book on mass that he wrote with Mike Aloisi. And I was like, I got to read this. And I read it immediately reread it a second time. Right. And then went to uh, my producer and good best friend, entertainment attorney and said, you got to read this. Like, this is the movie I want to make. And he read it and he's like, you know, I want to make this with you. And so we approached Kane's manager and uh, talked with her for a bit. She's got a sense we were actually legit and wanted to do this the right way. Right. And which is always our goal. Like we wanted Kane's story to be told in his words. We wanted him to have final approval the whole time. Like he knew he had it. Um, ended up utilizing very little of it just because he liked the film we did. Like he, I think, made two tweaks that made the film stronger, mostly with the ending montage. Right. He really wanted his family in there. At the beginning, I was kind of like, well, uh, I don't want pictures in here. And you didn't have video. And I was like, I'm not really sure I want to do that. But then we, my editor and I re-edited it. And it works so much stronger to be like, you know, at the end, we have a, for people who haven't seen it, like a what you would have missed kind of section right. in there. And it's sort of a recap of his entire life. And his family is a huge part of his life. They're right. insanely important to him and the thing he's most proud of. So it was very important for him. And now I think it fits so much better at the end to include them and include some other elements we maybe weren't going to include before. Um, so yeah, I just, we want to do it with him. We 
uh, Andrew and I met with him uh, for for lunch, uh, and immediately like he liked us, we liked him. He's like, if you guys can do this, you know, it was like the late May, and he's like, if we can start shooting by June fifteenth, I'm in. Like he was like kind of like giving us sort of a like the ultimatum, the ultimatum kind of right. thing. Like I've been talked sold projects before by people as we all know in this industry like things happen money falls through or whatever and he's like so but i feel like i'm getting the same vibes from you guys that i got from adam green with hatchet like i feel like you're actually going to do this right so i'm just going to say if we can do it by june i'm going to do it and i'm going to be incited by it if we if it takes longer than that my enthusiasm may wane and i may not be there interested when you guys come back to me right so immediately i went home freaked out a little bit because uh not only was this happening but we didn't have any money in the bank at that point we had investors who were interested but we didn't like they could have pulled out even though they were waiting on kane signing to agree so when he signed his promissory note they jumped in and we were able to at least a certain amount of money jumped in so we were able to shoot those first two days in um in Canoga Park, we we went to Remit Studios there, which if you've never haven't been, like it's actually a really good place. And they they shot um, a bunch of stuff for Victor Crowley, the latest Hatchet oh, yeah. film there, thanks to us, because I'm the one who told Adam Green about it. Oh, wow. Because they had a plane there, a plane set, and they had like it, it's also just a reasonably priced place. They build like they built that set we shot on for us. Like they have like a carpentry house in house, like. It was just a great place, energy, like Kane walks in like this massive, you know, 15, 20,000 square foot soundstage with a, a set in the middle of it and like monitors and tons of lights. And it was just the atmosphere we needed. Like he had his own dressing room. He had, we had a makeup room, the whole area. Like it was the legit film I wanted to make. Right. And not like, you know, later on through the shoots as money became a little less tight uh, as money became more tight, I should say they we weren't necessarily as glamorous, but we didn't need to be either. Right. Kane by that point, you know, very early on, like it, within that first day of shooting, became completely like sold. And he called his manager from he like from the dressing room and said, like, you got to come and see this. These guys are legit. Like I was a little afraid when I heard Canoga Park, <laughs> and but when I got here, you know, it was like, you know, a studio that. Well, yes, it did, you know, 20 something years prior was a porn studio, has since been renovated many times over right. and is a uh, like a really good facility that. Um, hey, know, porn paid for a lot of stuff in this town. No, it did. And there's not a, it's not a, a bad deal to have a, uh, you know, the soundstage. All that matters is what we're using it for today. And exactly. Even if it was used tomorrow for something else, like that's not our set. That's not our atmosphere. So. Mm. Like we we were able to put together a, a great project with with Kane and uh, you know that that's really all that matters. I agree, uh, and you know what I really think is so important about this piece is that Kane Hodder is for a lot of horror fans an icon, but a lot of the characters he plays are voiceless, and so you were able to give this man who we see so often. A chance to tell his story and um you know i think audiences can learn a lot from kane's life because i think that uh, the life of a stuntman 
is is usually fraught with danger, as 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 we know, uh, Kane himself has has had severe physical injuries. Yeah. Um, but what did you learn from Kane Hodder? I learned a lot, actually. I mean, I think a lot of like filmmaking. I'll start with filmmaking wise. Filmmaking wise, I learned to trust myself a lot more. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the beginning, I was very nervous to delve into certain things with him as much. Like I, I quickly learned that Kane is much easier than most to trust people, at least give the illusion of trusting people. Right. As in like, he was a lot more willing to like answer questions than I thought he would be. Right. At the beginning, I would always kind of, I did this thing. Like I think Kane appreciated it at the beginning where I would like ask a bunch of tough questions and a bunch of filler questions. Right. Kind of give him a chance to kind of calm down. But occasionally he would say, no, uh, do you mind if we just do a bunch more burn stuff? Like, I'm in that zone. It may become too much for me. I may need to step out a couple times, but right. I'd rather kind of keep going on this vein. It's like, fine. I'm all good with that. I just wanted to, I was thinking this, you know, would help. So a lot of it became like, I had to kind of really, I learned to trust myself and my instincts as far as filmmaking and you know, Kane, you know, taught me kind of, you know, that I can do this. Like a lot of stuff, like I always thought I could do it, but I didn't know because the short didn't come out that great. And I always like feared that like I was kind of doing this for, you know, uh, like there are certain people who are doing work and you're just like, oh, can you please stop? Like this isn't right for you. Go find something else you're good at. And like, I was afraid for a little bit that maybe I'm not a, a good filmmaker, but I think this film taught me that like it really if you do the proper legwork, you mm-hmm. can, you know, like I I do have the ability to make a good film. And Kane has said that like, you know, and that like he's like, everyone who sees this movie, uh, you know, has liked this movie. Right. Say for one I I will not name reviewer in London. Um <laughs> who didn't like one. it. Yeah. But that's literally so far like the only bad review that I've seen was there. And I try right. not to read all the reviews, but I'm only human. I right. every once in a while will read a review and a lot of times like we got a, I got an email the other day from somebody who like it, it was like an insane change in their lives and Kane told me this one story from a convention that like this person like literally watched the doc the night they thought they would end their lives and didn't because of the doc and rewatched it like 12 times for the next few weeks until she got up enough courage to go and seek help. And she claims that not just Kane's story, but the documentary that I made and, and the group of very talented people with me um, saved her life. That's and amazing. that is crazy to hear right? from, from a project that like, you know, it is a labor of love. I mean, this is a, you know, I started, we started in June, 2015 and it came out in July, 2018. Right. So it was a, a huge uh, labor of love but it you know it's definitely a film that i i definitely can look at and say that i think it's a good movie right. and a lot of filmmakers have issue looking at their own stuff and saying that i know i can cut time out of this that's what i see now when i watch it it's right. like there are se- sections of it i'm just like i could cut that out nobody would miss it but i don't necessarily even think that's true just because I don't know if you could cut it out and keep the same heart and feel. So yeah, it would maybe flow a little better, but if it didn't tell Kane's story the way he wanted it told, right. it isn't the film I wanted to tell. 
Now, uh, you had mentioned at the beginning that when you read Kane's book and you kind of dug into his background, there's there's stories of bullying. Uh, and what's interesting about when you think of Kane and his physicality, he's a he's a big muscular man. Yep. Like who who would ever even think to bully Kane Hodder? But everyone's life journey is truly that a journey. And when uh, you tell the story about the woman who kind of uh, got affirmation to continue living. I'm wondering, just because of the nature of this show, like Kane is such a tough guy and is viewed uh, by horror fans as a tough guy. But horror is, of course, a genre that draws outsiders and people from all walks of life. What do you think queer audiences can gain from hearing Kane Hodder's story? Well, I think they can learn that uh, anything, anyone can survive. The, the things that Kane had to survive, you know, his burn, the bullying, uh, the bullying's was still very severe, but less so than the burn. Like if you're able to, to get through, like it's not easy to get through the, some of the stuff that, you know, queerances have to endure in life. Like, right. especially living in certain areas. We're lucky. We live in Southern California. We deal with a lot less than a lot of other people, but like, you know, poor, you know, like people in Alabama, the South just in general right. have to deal with a lot more harassment than, uh, and bullying. But if you can kind of find who you are and kind of overcome it, like Kane, the whole time he was going through this burn stuff, all he wanted to do was continue to be a stuntman. His parents thought he was crazy right. for wanting to get back into that career that literally almost killed him. But he was like, Nope, I made a mistake. I'm going to, I have to, I have to get back to what I love doing. I loved, he loved doing it. Everything, all the muscle stretching and skin stretching and, and ripping and all that nonsense he had to go through right. was to become a stuntman again. And that's all he ever wanted to do. So all this extra stuff in his eyes, like the, any kind of fame he has any uh, like notoriety and, and uh, you know, the ability to act like he never thought any of that. He never necessarily even wanted it. He doesn't, you know, I'm not saying that he didn't, doesn't appreciate it, but he didn't expect to achieve anything more than potentially being a working stuntman. Uh, I think that he's phenomenal. I, one of the things I have to say is that Kane Hodder to me has always been evidence. He among you know many great stuntmen working, but he his career it, it exemplifies the idea of why I think we need to have an Oscar for stuntmen and stunt people because it's a category that's still very much like you know not taken into account by the Academy. But I remember attending. Uh, Friday. Neither cinematography now. Well, well, we're, <laughs> now it's back. They they put it back in the broadcast. Okay, good. Yeah, they keep they keep doubling back. Um, what's interesting is I remember attending a uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven screening, and uh, someone in the audience asked about the scene where the roof drops on Jason. They were like, "Well, how did you do that effect where they dropped the roof on you?" And Kane's like, "They dropped a roof on me." Yep, yeah. it was a balsa wood set, but what people didn't understand about it is even if you if you connect balsa wood and um shing regular shingles to two by fours right that are going horizontally it's still the balsa wood planks if they're with two by fours and that are still strong enough where there's just like a regular house like and just because they exactly just because they break um easily like when you punch them does not mean that when they're stacked like this with nails in them and shingles that they're not going to be able to withstand weight. Right. So yeah, when that how when that roof dropped on him, it literally drove him into the ground and cut him and all this other stuff. But 
he literally like got the makeup touch back up and went back and did another bunch of other takes that day. Like he's not, he's even still like you'll hear of these things on movies. It'll be like, like the other day he was on this project and like, um, something happened and you know, like he got cut and was bleeding and like, he just was like, do you have any gauze? And they gauzed it up and he went right back to it. it And you know, kind of hit it. His character had a glove. So they just kind of, the next take they had him put the glove on and without the bandit, like he put some of that like stop bleed stuff on and then put the glove on with gauze it up and, you know, stuff and was good. Like he is a trooper and he, you know, a lot of the stuff because of the burn, like he doesn't feel pain anymore. Right. Very much. Like it has to be pretty darn severe for Kane to, so like even when he goes for minor surgeries, doesn't really use any kind of, pain killing because he can handle it my god kane hotter makes me feel like a delicate flower i'm like i can't it's too much yeah Um, like kane and kane's one of those like i think another thing that queer audiences get is he's been uh he he doesn't care about anybody's personal uh affiliations as in like he's sort of a love and let love person he's a which is funny that that you know there's a person like him is that way necessarily but like when you know when when he found it, you know, when I let him know I was gay, he didn't care. Right. It's like, does that affect the story? And that's like, it's like, no. He's like, I don't like. It was sort of like his, one of his best friends. It, it mentions in his book, um, was gay, and they shared a you know one bedroom place, two different beds, you know. But like, this was in the middle of the eighties. You know, he visited his friend. He his friend unfortunately passed away of AIDS, but he visited him in the hospital. You know, before it was the thing that you know you were supposed to do it was but right. like he didn't he never really got scared of a lot of this stuff like he was never afraid of people because of who they are he's that's how he feels like he's like if you're born a certain way like you got to just be that person right. you can't you know hide who you are no i like that i like that uh i get the sense that he approaches the world with strength and encourages people to do as well and i i'm really grateful that you have uh you know taken time to really preserve his story and uh i knew that having you on today because i'm sure it's a question that you really didn't get asked very often if at all that queer audiences could learn some things from him and i I, I wanted to talk about that um but you know before we we move on and head off into the night i have to ask just for fun uh and I will confess that when uh, you were coming on, I planned this question a little bit differently because I, I being a, a, a kid of the '80s who loved Jason, I had Jason firmly in mind. Yeah. Uh, but then discovering that your in- reintroduction uh, to horror and to Kane was Hatchet, I was going to ask you what's your favorite non-Jason Kane performance. But now I'm going to have to ask: Do you have a favorite Kane hotter non-Jason non-Victor Crowley performance? Okay, that's a good one. Um, let me think. Uh, there's there's some good ones, but I really I enjoyed him in. Um, trying to think of the name of it. Um, I liked in BTK. He gave a hell of a performance. Um, while the movie isn't necessarily the best movie, his performance like he's a good actor, and people are right. don't give him the credit necessarily that he deserves on that front. Like I loved seeing him in Monster. You know with Charlize Theron that people don't necessarily remember him being in, but people also don't remember that was Patty Jenkins either. Right. Who now is doing the wonder woman sequel and stuff. 
Yeah, talk talk about a journey. It took her seven years before she got another film. So, but yeah, it took her seven years, but she knocked it out of the park. She and, sure did. She's one of my faves, and uh, she hopefully will be. Fingers crossed. Kane's trying to, you know, get find her old email address, <laughs> see if she still uses it because he wants her to see the doc. Because then they talk occasionally. We know she's very busy, obviously, right. with One Woman too. But we'd love for her to, you know, watch it because. I know she was always a big advocate for Kane being on that film and she really wanted somebody and he credits that movie for a lot of his, if he has, he says any acting talent is from watching people like Charlize Theron work right. in Monster because that's a heck of a performance and, you know. Sure uh, I'm trying to think what my favorite non-Victor, non-Jason. I have a soft spot and this is such, such a niche like USA up all night answer. Uh, but Kane has a cameo as a frat boy in uh, Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College. Yes. And I think he's so funny in it. He is. Because, uh, you know, again, as someone who's known so frequently for nonverbal characters, uh, you're right. He's a good actor. And his comic timing is great. And that movie is so patently ridiculous. Um, it is. And I, I was on a set of a film he shot here in Glendale, actually, not too long ago, uh, Knife Corp. Um, and... Uh, just, you know, Kane invited me. He's like, I'm, you know, excited about this one. You want to, I very rarely shoot in California. You want to come to set. And so right. I did. And they had just seen the doc and, uh, as well. Cause I think he wanted it to also be like a, uh, in some ways, like a, a boost morale boost for me as like a, <laughs> well, let them tell you how much they liked it, but they were doing a great job and it's beautiful old house here in Glendale. But like, um, Yeah he was doing this one scene and like it was, he's intense, but he's, it's like, it's really good. And he has been enjoying getting a chance to do, he did this movie in, in uh, England recently. Um, an accidental zombie named Ted, where he plays like a boss, but it's like, like a love story is an accidental zombie named Ted. Yeah. I love that title. <laughs> and it's like, apparently like a zombie and a girl fall in love, but like the, girl's parents are upset she's dating a zombie sort of like a racism thing but mm -hmm. not like a it's a zombie blah blah, blah. it's more like this was allegorical so it's like it. an allegorical kind of thing but kane plays like the boss like cigar chomping boss of the character like and like it's just a different completely ridiculous comedic performance and it's that's one of the reasons i enjoy like working with kane working with people like you know felissa rose is that they can just pull some of this stuff. Both of them are phenomenal actors. Right. And both of them got their start in horror and in like sort of a lot less flashy ways or like Felicity stepped away for so many years. Right. But now is coming back and really showing, you know, her acting chops and she has them. Yeah, she sure does. So, you know, you talked about how working on this documentary served for you as a sense of sort of like reaffirmation that you're doing what you're meant to do. And yeah. That you can uh, be a filmmaker and should be a filmmaker. So this is a good segue into asking what's next? What's on the horizon? What are you working on? What can you tell us about? Yeah. So I have. Um, so th you mentioned at the beginning there inside. That's a, a found footage home invasion horror uh, film that we shot up in Idlewild, uh, Big Baron Lake Arrowhead, as well as a little bit in North North Hollywood. Um, that one is I'm very excited about. Like we're we're currently talking with a number of distributors about it, but um, and even you know, it, we're just trying to figure out like 
the best route to put it out just because it I think it could do very good things. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that movie. Um I think it has a very unique twist on you know who's filming uh this thing, who put it together. One of the questions I scream at the TV or the theater the most like not really in the theater but like in my head in the theater is like when I'm watching like some found footage I'm always like why the hell are they still recording? Like right. what possible? And we answer that question in this one and we answer like who edited it. If it's found footage, did they find a camcorder perfectly edited with, with two different camcorders <laughs> tapes on there? Like it just doesn't like, they've never really answered those. And I right. think they're important questions. That's when I read the script, which was around the same time as to Helen back was filming. I was like, we have to, um, you know, we have to answer mm-hmm. this, um, the like I was very excited that the script answered them and it evolved quite a bit and the budget we had like one we were trying to get like a huge budget we were trying to get a medium budget then we ended up doing it for a shoestring budget but I don't think that you know anything really suffered we had effects um by uh soda effects the people who did death house and um children of the corn and like classic all practical effects that we then oh, cool. enhanced a teeny bit with digitally, but mostly just removal, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you know, from horror and blood effects and stuff, there's lots of tubes and, and, and stuff like that, that aren't necessarily easily hidden. Re- yeah. hidden. So we had to do some removal, but for the most part, like, um, yeah, everything's practical. And I just, I really dug it. I thought, I think I still very much believe in that movie. And I'm excited for people to finally get to see it. And that's um, coming soon? Hopefully, yeah. Um, my goal is to have it out soon. Um, I know we're doing a cast and crew like screening of it finally because a lot of them haven't even seen it in, in March. But my goal is to get... I'm hoping that all of us producers can agree and get a distributor picked and have it start moving through the pipeline or or do whatever with it soon so that we can get the audience to be able to see it. And I can do more stuff like this talking about that as well. Right. Uh, because in a, in a sense, once people can actually watch it, but um, then I also, I'm currently one of the, one of the things I'm talking about in the meeting I'm about to go to is a new short film that I'm writing that uh, I want to turn into a feature. And so I'm trying to uh, shoot this short that really kind of opens up the, characters and creature that I want to bring to the feature version of it. Cause I really want to do a, a horror uh, narrative film. And I, you know, I, I'm hoping to do the doc. Like I can talk about it because we've announced it, but like it's kind of in a holding pattern, but like I'm supposed to be once Adam green does um, gets the next season of Holliston, assuming he does uh, up and uh, off the ground, we're supposed to be working on a, documentary with him about the road to Holliston, like getting uh, it even made and everything that went on with him during the uh, folding of Fearnet, his divorce and so much other things that led his life to, you know, pretty low point. Mm-hmm. And his whole story kind of is the story of Holliston. Like so many people worked to do it. So it's sort of like the Rocky of horror docu- adjacent documentaries where it's kind of like this one person, he had all the success in Hatchet and Frozen and all this, but all he wanted, what you know, Holocene is so important to him that it's right. like, that's what he wanted to do this whole time. I like that a lot of your work is all about the behind the scene 
stories that make horror happen. Because yeah. there is a lot of personal investment. Agreed. And I feel like I feel like, you know, I don't know how many documentaries I want to do or can do given how long they take. But right. um but I also like the idea of if a story is good and and uh somebody you know, I feel like it needs to be told, I'd love to be the one to tell it. Like I I don't have a problem with uh making a few more good documentaries, but I also do want to move into narrative in the horror and out, outside of the horror. Like a lot of the films that move me are adjacent or, or like more the, uh, like the Goonie gremlin style action. I'd love to be able to do at some point, right. like honestly, the films that are most been most inspiring to me lately are films a lot more like, uh, I've mentioned it a few times today, but that's because of it is like, the happy death day movies. When I saw the first one and when I saw this sequel, that those are the kind of movies ultimately I'd like to make. And normally just fun, ridiculous movies like that. And normally this would be the portion of the show right before we wrap up where I would ask you, uh, you know what you've seen recently that you like, that you recommend that inspires you. So obviously happy death day uh, to you is one of those. Anything else that's really on your radar right now that like really is jazzing you up? Yeah. I mean, I've been digging, I've been finally I started it when it first came out and then I, for some reason, stopped, uh, I think just timing. But I've been rewatch. I've finally been catching up with the Twin Peaks, the return. Oh, it's marvelous. I love uh, Twin Peaks, the original, mm-hmm. the movie, even though I can't I still can't believe that uh, the, the you know, the can audience booed and left the theater after Firewalk with me. Well, that's the last is it a phenomenal film necessarily? I love it. And I think I, it's good. It's a weird movie, but yeah. like the new series is weird too. And yet they stood up and cheered when he showed them that. So like, I feel like I also just don't necessarily agree with that mentality of film of a film festival audience in general. Well, I like a, I like a film festival audience that's willing to cheer or cry or whatever, but like, seems like the French must not, they're sort of like they cheer or they boo and that's it. There's well, no in between. Uh, Mr. Lobo, who's a famous horror host uh, from Northern California, uh, famously said, uh, there are no bad movies, just bad audiences. That's and true. In, and in some ways, I think that's accurate. Because uh, even a movie that is considered the worst movie in the world has one person who absolutely loves it. So yep. you just want, you just hope and dream that when you screen something somewhere that you're going to get those people who are going to cheer you on. Exactly. Well... I'm super happy that you were able to join us today. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, I'm available on all major social media. Um, and same with my company. I'm at Derek D. Herbert and Masterfully M on Twitter. Uh, Instagram is Masterfully Mac- at Masterfully Macabre and at Derek D. Herbert. On Facebook, I'm Derek Dennis Herbert. Uh, my profile, but we're also on there as Masterfully Macabre Entertainment. Well, thank you again for joining us and talking to us about your documentary and your work and your journey in horror. Uh, please, listeners, check out To Hell and Back, the Kane Hodder story, and keep your eyes open for the release of There Inside, as well as everything that uh, Derek is working on in the future. Definitely someone to watch. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. 
The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.